You're listening to audio from Mosaic Boston Church. If you'd like to check out more resources, learn about Mosaic Boston and our neighborhood churches, or donate to this ministry, please visit mosaicboston.com. So we're going to be all over the Bible today. This is a little bit different than normal, um, than we normally do. And so I want to just start off saying uh, that this is, normally we kind of like just settle down in one space in one chapter or one or several verses, but today we're going to kind of go all over the place. And so um, I, I just want you to know that. So if, if you have a hard time following along, you can't flip fast enough, it'll be up on the screen for you to go through it with us. So our new series is called Reclaim, Reclaim. And it really comes down to this idea that the world was created good by God. It was beautiful. It was ordered. It was beneficial for all. But um, humanity has been breaking God's good creation since the third page of the Bible. And yet in the midst of all the broken pieces around us, Jesus came into it and he reclaimed it through his death and resurrection. He redeems, maybe is another word you've heard, or, or renews and recovers the original purpose and meaning behind what uh, he wanted in his good creation. So our theme passage looks at the future when the original creation is completely reclaimed or restored, and it comes at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 3, it said, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God is dwelling with humanity. Then, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. If you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, today as we look at your word and we, we kind of take a tour through the scriptures, God, I pray that you would in, illuminate it to us, that you would help us to understand and things that are confusing, Lord, may you make clear to us. And Lord, if my words are not uh, good enough, I pray that you would come through and your Holy Spirit would make it clear. God, that you would speak through this time today and that uh, you would impact us, um, that we could know you better than we came into this room knowing you. And we could leave more confident in you than we came into this room. Lord, we live in a world right now that is in um, so much chaos and pain and suffering and there's big events going on that are so far above our head, but Lord, they're not above yours. And we specifically remember this situation in Syria and all the stuff that's going on around that, God. I pray that you would, God, give leaders wisdom in, in, in all uh, those countries that are involved. God, I pray that what is right and good would happen and, and that, God, you would be involved and, and, and help us to know how we can be a part of your justice. God, as we look at, so we've looked at what you intended in the garden last week, Jesus, and we looked at what happened and, and that we're so far away from that good creation you made, God. We sit in a world where things are not right, but, God, we know that you're making them right, that you're reclaiming this world, and that you use us to begin that process just a little bit. So God, help us to be the men and women that we need to be, to be your reclaimers, to be you to people that may have never met or will never see you, 
God, may that be our mission in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began um, to connect work to God's good intent and what he meant. And what was interesting is we often think of work as kind of a drag. Like, it's like, oh, I got to work. It's just a necessity of something I have to do. But we found out that it was part of God's good creation in the beginning because God is the original worker, that he made work, and it was a good thing that he made. But then the fall happened. Chapter 3, page 3, whatever, happened, and everything changed. And all that good turned to something else. Um, It became less flow and more woe. Less oil and more toil. Less favor and more labor. Less without fail and more travail. Okay, I'm done. Just kidding, one more. Um, This is the best one. I saved the best for last, I'm sorry. Less swag and more drag. Good? Okay, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. But you get the point, because you live the point. You go to work, and you're like, wow, you know, even if you love your job, there are days when it's just, it's tough. It's hard. It doesn't feel like it's a part of God's good creation. So last week, we saw how God is taking what he designed for good, and he is, after we messed it all up, he's now reclaiming it or redeeming it. But this week, we're going to take a look at two things that are very, I think, closely intertwined. It's God's calling on our lives and also the will of God. I think those two things come together very well. Maybe you've asked questions like these. Am I in the right job right now? What is God's will for my life? Maybe you've asked God, God, would you just show me what you want me to do? If you would just tell me what you want me to do, it would make life so much easier. God, am I settling when I'm made for so much more. So I hope today as we go through this and look at the will of God, understanding and knowing and doing the will of God, that we can kind of answer some of those questions. A few years ago, Allie and I had a huge decision that we had to make. God had called us to plant a church. We had to decide where we were going to plant. We kind of left it open. We said, wherever you want us to go. God, if you want us uh, in, in uh, New York or you want us in Boston or you want us in Somalia, we'll go. Whatever and wherever, we'll go. So we started, we began to pray through the exact city, what it would be. And so we put a map up on our refrigerator of all the major cities and began praying through each. And I, I asked God for a sign in the clouds. I said, God, if you want us to go to a city, give me a sign in the clouds. So I prayed about Seattle and I went outside and I looked in the sky. Nothing. I prayed about Istanbul and no sign. I prayed about Washington, D.C., and I went outside, nothing in the sky. Los Angeles, sky, nothing. Moscow, no sign. Dublin, nothing. Finally, one day, I prayed for Boston. I went outside and I looked in the sky. I'll never forget what what I saw because this is it. This is the picture. I took a picture of it so I wouldn't forget. There was a cross in the sky, and I didn't know how it happened. That's not at all how it went, at all. That's not at all what I did. (laughs) Not true at all. It's a totally different story, and that is just a picture I found on Google um, of two contrails passing by each other. I know some of you were thinking, that idiot doesn't know that planes make those things? You've, You've known those people before. 
haven't you? People searching for the will of God and can find the will of God anywhere and everywhere, and you're not actually sure if it is. And maybe you've been that person before. God, just show me a sign. Show me a sign. Now, hold on to that story. I'll get to the end of it toward the end of today's message. But there's no doubt in my mind that we've been called by God in some specific ways, that there were moments in my life that I can say, and this is true, I can say there are moments in my life where God's voice was clearer to me than the person standing next to me. That I can say the, th- the phrase, God told me, which is a scary phrase to say. Because if you say the phrase, God told me, there's no argument. If you come up to somebody and you say, well, God told me to do this. Well, then why are you even talking to me about it? Go do it. You know, when God showed up to Moses in a burning bush, there was no argument. Is this God's will? Yeah, God showed up. Yahweh was in the bush. So if you say the words, God told me to do it, you better be sure about it. There have been very few instances where I actually would say that I felt like God was telling me to do it. There are very important instances, though. The first one was when I was 14, and I, I felt like, God was telling me and calling me to salvation. I was, and a a preacher was preaching, and I was sitting in a chair, and I just felt God calling me as real as anything I'd ever felt in my life to come to him. I was at 14. The next one is 16. I was, I remember standing just holding the back of the pew as I felt God calling me to full-time ministry. And I will be honest, Those are the only two times that I remember in my life feeling like God called me. But do you know how many decisions and instances of life where I had to make choices on the will of God have happened in between and and after those things? Thousands upon thousands of decisions that I had to make. And even to a lesser degree starting a church, it kind of happened different. It was more like God was just involved, and I could see how he was involved, but it wasn't like God just came to me out of the clouds and was like, start a church. Do burning bush moments happen? Yeah, I think they do. But I think they're very rare. It would be nice that every time we have a big decision coming up, all of a sudden God lights up a bush and he's like, this is what you need to do. And you're like, yes, this is awesome. I always know what God wants me to do. Go here, date this person, marry them, have a baby, this major, that school, whatever. But that's just not how it works 99.99% of the time. We all want clarity from, uh, from God on the purpose of our life. And it would be nice to have that from a God that knows the future, and maybe not the whole life, because that could be kind of weird, you know, like when you're going to die or something. Maybe just like the next year, God. Could you just give me like a view into the next year and let me see what's going to happen in my life? So how can we know what we're called to? How can we know the will of God? I was doing a little research this past week. Millennials, um, maybe some of you in this room are millennials, um, as I am, but millennials are the least decisive generation in recent memory. This is what uh, psychologists have been studying, and they have a hard time for two main reasons. The first reason that millennials have a hard time is they have what they're calling um, decision paralysis. They just have too many choices. When I was growing up in our house, we had like maybe like uh, 10 or 20 different movies, VHS movies that we could watch, and we would pick which movie we'd have it just in a few minutes. We'd say, oh, we want to watch this one again, you know, whatever it was. Then, 
Uh, if you go to Blockbuster, anybody remember Blockbuster, right? Uh, um, yeah, got a Blockbuster goer over there. But it was a beautiful thing. You walk into Blockbuster and just movies everywhere, hundreds of movies. And you could walk in and you, you took, a, took a minute to figure out what movie you wanted. And you, you and your sibling would kind of like maybe fight over which movie it was. And you play Paper, Rock, Scissors and eventually just ran, uh, land on it in Encino Man again for the fourth time. Um, but today, Netflix has... Set over 7,000 different movies to choose from. You ever sat down to go watch a movie on Netflix or a TV show? Or, but you didn't know what you're going to watch. So you just start surfing through Netflix and you search for 45 minutes and end up falling asleep before you actually watch anything because you can't decide. There's too much. That's decision paralysis. But, you know, real choices aren't any easier for us. In high school, we strove for a high GPA. We took the SAT five times, so we'd have more choices of schools. And then, uh, then, then we had to choose which school we were going to go to. Which major will we choose then? And our whole life depends on this choice. What job will we take out of college? Will we have a job out of college Should I just give up on getting a job and go get my master's? Or maybe I'll go get my PhD. Or maybe I'll go work at Starbucks. Or maybe I'll work at Starbucks and get my PhD. Or maybe I'll take a travel year or a year in between. I don't know. I have all the options in the world more than any other generation in history. But we just can't even. So we hold off on making any decision at all because it's too much. Carol Beaton, Psychology Today, writes this. Paradoxically, our stress befalls the generation with the most optionality yet. The blessing could also be our curse. Our attitude growing up was perhaps, therefore, not so much I deserve it, which is what people say, the trophy, you know, everybody gets a free trophy or gets a trophy generation, you know. So rather than I deserve it, but rather I can have it. I can have it. We had the ability to shoot for the stars. You, you've seen that, right? Shoot for the stars. When you get up to the stars, you realize there's billions of stars, billions of places, or lots of things to do. Uh, yesterday, um, <laughs> we were watching Blue's Clues, and so if you're a millennial, that's kind of your Sesame Street, and um, if Sesame Street wasn't your Sesame Street. But anyway, so... Uh, so we're watching Blue's Clues, and the, the phrase in it is, if you use your mind and take a step at a time, you can do anything that you want to do. Some of you were singing it, right, as I said that, which is what we were told so often. You can do anything you put your mind to. But another reason we can't make a choice is the, the, the perfect choice. It's perfection. We, it's the Instagram effect that we see the pictures and videos of other people's lives at their best, and we begin to compare somebody's highlight reel to our behind the scenes, and it feels like we're imperfect, like we don't have it together, and we want to make the right choice, and yet we're scared to make any choice because what if we don't make the perfect choice? University of Bath published a study that shows millennials are not spoiled 20-somethings that procrastinate through life by doing the bare minimum. They're working so hard that they're stressing themselves out with perfection. This is a quote from uh, Francesca Friday from The Observer. As it so happens, the most recent generation of college students are the ones feeling the most pressure to be perfect. Young people are perceiving that their social context is increasingly demanding and that others judge them more harshly and that they are increasingly inclined to display perfection 
as a means of securing approval. We don't just want to make a choice. We want to make the perfect choice. Find the perfect job. Marry the perfect person. When it comes to major and career life direction, we just get overwhelmed. And probably as we talk about this, you're getting a little stressed out just thinking about it. What do you want us to do, God, if you would just show us what to do? Today I'm going to walk you through a set of ideas for when you don't get the burning bush. I hope that at some point in your life you have a time where you just are so sure of what God says. It is so real to you that it is if he has spoken to you out loud. I hope that happens. But for 99% of the time, this is how I think we should go about it. And it's all based in the scriptures and study I've been doing over the past few weeks. So there's a whole lot here, so feel free to write it down if you want to. First thing, who overdo? Who overdo? Let me read this out of 1 Thessalonians 4. One through three. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God. So live in a way that pleases God. As we have taught you, you live this way already and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will. Let me read that one more time. God's will is for you to be holy. God's will is is for you to be holy. Who you are over what you do. God is more concerned about who you're becoming and how you're uh, living your life in him than even what you're doing. Maybe this isn't, this example isn't how you guys think, but there are many people that see preachers and missionaries as kind of those that are closest to doing the will of God and everybody else um, is, is farther off from doing the will of God. I don't know, like I said, I don't know if that's how you think, but there's people that think that way. And, and so that's not at all what the scriptures teach in any way, shape, or form. We are all called to follow Jesus wherever he's put us. Whatever position that you are in, wherever you have influence, you follow him to the best of your ability. Did you know that a preacher can be outside of the will of God and still preach? As a preacher's kid, I saw this firsthand where uh, other um, my father, who is a man of God, uh, really uh, did, a, did an amazing job at, at, at uh, following God. But we, I've known other pastors who fell into habitual sin. And though they were standing up and preaching the word, they were far outside the will of God because they weren't focused on the who. They just thought about the do. So if I preach the Bible, I don't have to necessarily live the Bible, which is completely wrong. But you can also be a biochemist inside the will of God because you're following his leading in every area of your life. Because not, God's not as concerned about what you do, but who you are in what you do. Who overdo? Today, before looking to do something new for God, commit to being someone for God. As you become who you've been called to be, you'll be on the path to doing what God's called you to do. Leonard Ravenhill, a British evangelist, said this, the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man or an unholy person out of an unholy world and make him holy. Then put him back into that unholy world 
and keep him holy in it. Yeah, God desires more preachers. God wants more missionaries. He wants all of those things, but he is seeking workers who are holy in whatever they do. He's seeking those who are holy as baristas or doctors or mothers and fathers or musicians and engineers and mechanics and lawyers and chemists and whatever else you can name. If I didn't name your profession, I'm sorry. But he's looking for you to be righteous and holy and serving him in that capacity. Who you are is more important than what you do. So while he's concerned with the who, he's also concerned with the why. Over and over again, we see motives uh, examined and questioned by Jesus and and God in the Bible. So he's concerned about who overdo, but also why before what. We consistently see Jesus calling out religious officials' motives. Like, they would go and they give all the money and they go to church on all the right days and they wear all the right clothes and they eat all the right food and all the, they do all the right things, but they did it not to worship God, but to worship themselves. They did it to make themselves look good. Jesus said this when he's talking about giving in prayer. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Because it's about, when, when, it, when you practice your righteousness in front of people, it becomes not about God, but it becomes about us. And Jesus says, don't do that. Why would he say this? Because he knows that our motives are kind of shady. <laughs> that we can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And it's still good we're doing the right things, but God cares about our heart. He cares about our want to. He cares about our motives. Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 18. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So read into that, a very religious person and a pagan, a heathen. That's how they thought of the tax collectors. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. Listen to this prayer. What a jerk. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Whoa. (laughs) I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is what Jesus says. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God cares about our motives. He cares about the why more than the what. The religious officials were constantly concerned with their glory rather than God, and they got it completely backwards. The Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians. So whatever you do, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. That your motive should be the glory of God. And kind of developing that in our lives, the why before the what. Should be our greatest motive. Whatever profession God's put us in, God's more concerned with why we're doing what we're doing than just the what of what we're doing. We can worship Jesus while flipping burgers or performing heart surgery. We can seek the glory of God while praying, and we can seek our own glory, excuse me, while praying or preaching the gospel. 
God cares about motives. So live right for the right reasons. And do next, though. Do the wise thing. I had to keep with the alliteration here. But prudent more than perfect. Prudent more than perfect. It's better to be wise about a decision than make a perfect decision. Many times we get, this is the whole perfection that we were talking about earlier, that we get caught up in the big life-altering choices and freeze up and we say, what if I make the wrong choice? What if I go outside of God's will? What if I step outside? What am I going to do? What if I don't find the job that meets my greatest potential? What if I don't like it as much as my other job? What if my coworkers are just really horrible people? What if I make the wrong choice? Stop doing that. (laughs) Seek wisdom and make a decision. Follow God in whatever wise decision comes your way. You rarely go wrong, even if it's not a perfect decision. There's moments in actually in the Apostle Paul's missionary career, as we look at what happened to him, where he had like knock off your horse, uh, seeing God, God talking to him moments, uh, dreams and visions and those kind of things. We hear about those things in, in the book of Acts. But in 1 Thessalonians, this is what he said. That wasn't the norm. I mean, we get those accounts because they were abnormal. The normal was he just had to make wise choices. He had to be prudent in the choices he's making. This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians 3.1. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. Even the Apostle Paul didn't always have a sure sign from God about everything. Many times he just had to say, what's the wise thing? What's the better thing for us to do at the moment? And a lot of times it comes down to two things. It comes down to prayer, praying your heart out to God, and talking to trusted people for wise counsel. James 1.5 says this, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives all generously and ungrudgingly and will be given, and it will be given to him. That the Bible says when we ask for wisdom, God help me understand, help me know, help me make the wise choice, God will give it to us. And a lot of times he does it through other people. He does it through wise counsel. Ask someone, I'm about to do this thing Is this wise? Is this a wise thing to do? Proverbs 13, 20 says, the one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. So ask the right people. Don't talk to just anybody, somebody you trust, somebody you know, somebody that cares for you. And then here's the thing, and this is the hard part, is when they tell you what you don't want to hear, listen to them. At least take it into consideration. At least say, okay, they love me. They want the best for me. I know they're a wise person. I've trusted them all these different times in my life. They're telling me this now. At least take it into consideration. You tell someone you trust so that they can tell you the truth, even if it hurts. Not just people that tell you what you want to hear. Those are the people you, I won't speak for everybody, but I want to go to at least. The ones that are going to tell me exactly what I already want to hear. But that's not how... Um, us finding a house happened. <laughs> we, um, we were trying to find a place to rent in JP. We, our time at our other apartment was coming to a close, and so we found this place in the middle of Jamaica Plain, and it had nothing we needed at all, um, except for the price. The price was good. It, w- it had no uh, washer, dryer. We have four kids. It had no washer, dryer, 
It had no parking. It was kind of a slum. <laughs> and it was like, it was in a pretty nice area, but it just wasn't a nice house. It was too small. Just really wasn't a good choice. But we said, we're going to move on it. We're going to do this. And so we filled out the application. We went to go send it off. And one of my mentors called me up, and he said, don't do it. This is not the right thing for you to do right now. Take some time. Trust God. Slow down because this isn't going to work for your family. And thank God, even as hard-headed as I can be and stubborn as I can be, Allie and I listened to, to this word. We kept looking, and three months later, we ran into a house that we just moved into last week. Is it perfect? Is it the perfect house? No, it's not the perfect house. We wanted it to be a little closer into Jamaica Plain than it, than it is. We, um, you know, it's got some issues in the house. It's just an old house. You know, is it the perfect house? Could we have waited two more years and found the perfect house? Maybe. But it came down to just making the wise, prudent choice. And God can work with that. God will work with that, making the wise choice. But next question is, does the wise choice always work out in our favor? No. No. Sometimes we do the wise thing and it can still fail. You can do what's wise and fall flat on your face. It's called life. <laughs> Does it mean it was out of the will of God? Maybe. But maybe not. Failure. Don't be scared of it because failure gives us wisdom. Failure for a wise future. Proverbs 24, 16 says this. Though a righteous person falls seven times, he will get up, but the wicked will stumble into ruin. That even the righteous person falls down. The one that's doing right, the one that's living right falls down, but the difference is get up. Get up. The will of God doesn't mean you're never gonna fail. That's what we think, that if I get right in the center of God's will, if I do exactly, if I get the perfect, perfectly in God's will and do what God wants me to do, nothing will ever go wrong. <laughs> Just not how it works. Because God's more concerned with who you're becoming than what you're even doing, as we talked about. And, and through the difficulties and difficult circumstances of life, he's forming you and shaping you. And in his will, things can go wrong. I used to race go-karts as, as like a hobby. We, we built go-kart engines and raced around dirt tracks and stuff. Um, anyway, and so I never won. I was pretty horrible at it. Well, it was just, that's, that's my life. And so <laughs> uh, my dad would always tell me, though, he'd look at me in the face and he'd say, son, <laughs> maybe your parents have said something similar to you, but son, we learn more from losing than we do from winning. It's totally true. Uh, I love the quote from, Alfred from Batman, um, he says, Master Bruce, do you know why we fall down? So we can learn how to get back up. And that's what God's doing. He's teaching us. He's forming us. But the question as believers that we should be asking is, what is failure anyway? What is it? What is failure? See, while life may change and circumstances are different, it doesn't necessarily mean that we fail because everything has a birth date and everything has a death date. Everything in life has a season. I was um, reminiscing with my grandmother on uh, Friday. It was her birthday, Friday the 13th. What a lucky birthday. Um, so I'm, I'm reminiscing with her about some just stuff. And uh, she's turned 79. 
And she started a children's consignment shop in 1996. So what's that, 22 years ago. And through it, she's done some amazing things. She's been able to provide for herself. She's provided for other people as she paid them. She became a staple to the community, like the community mourned when her shop shut down. During her time of having it open for 22 years, she gave clothes to uh, Mexico. She gave clothes to people all over the country, uh, the extra clothes that were kind of left over. She was able to uh, serve through that. She used it as a platform to preach the gospel. Like literally, when I say preach the gospel, like you'd have to know my grandmother, like literally preach the gospel as she's checking people out. She's just telling people about Jesus. But she used it as that platform and she was able to use it as this great ministry opportunity. She did exponentially more good through that little shop than anyone could have ever expected. But a few weeks ago, she shut it down after 22 years. Did it fail? Well, in one sense, it did. But in an eternal sense, I don't think it failed at all. It went through its life cycle that she was faithful to Jesus while she had that shop and she did so much good through it. Her eternal impact alone means that that shop didn't fail. There are people's lives that will be changed because of a children's consignment shop in Charleston, South Carolina. That's kind of crazy to think about, isn't it? As followers of Christ, we have a different perspective on failure. Should we work our tails off to be successful and not be lazy and, and try to succeed? Yeah, we should. But our greatest goal isn't earthly success, not earthly fame, eternal. How will what I'm doing right now affect eternity? Does what I'm doing right now make sense just on earth? Or does it make sense in a forever kind of way? If you're going to fail, it's impossible not to. It's the world we live in. We live in a world after the garden where there is failure, there is toil, there is there are thorns and thistles. But making what matters most matter most, and that is the eternal significance of what we do. So we came to Boston. We didn't look into the clouds to know where God wanted us to be, but we knew God had called us to plant a church. We prayed a lot. We sought wise counsel. And I think that we're right in the middle of God's will. Could we have stayed in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I went to school and been in God's will? I think we could have. Could we have gone to Seattle and served Jesus in Seattle? Yeah, probably so. But we're thankful to be here in Jamaica Plain working hard for Jesus where he has us and giving everything we have for him here. Now, I want to give you real quick running out of time here. I want to give you a quick flow chart of kind of how to make a decision. You ever seen those flow charts? You'll see it in just a second if you haven't. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, a quick flow chart of, of how at least I've gone about finding the will of God. So it, 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 you know, I think it goes through these questions or these statements that we said here, who, ever do, why, ever what, all those kinds of things. But it, it's something I made up, so take it with a grain of salt. So there you go. It's not like in the Bible or anything. Let me say it that way. But I think it can be helpful. It's been helpful for me, and it's been through study of mine and, and research in the scriptures and, and other books I've read. So I want to just look at this real quick. The question is, is it God's will? 
the first question we need to ask is, is it sin? Is it sin? So if the question is yes, it's sin, then the answer is nope. Not God's will. God's will will never be sin. Is it sin? No, it's not sin. So then we go to the next question. We go, for whose glory or to whom is the glory going to go? Well, is it mine? My glory? Am I doing it for me to puff me up, to make me look better? If that's the truth, then it's not God's will. Next. It's God's glory. All right, we're on the right track here. So, the next question is, is it wise? Is it a wise thing? Now, this is a hard one because we can trick ourselves into thinking pretty much anything is a wise choice if we want to. So, is it wise? And the answer is no. We say, no, that's stupid. If we can tell it's stupid, it's probably pretty stupid. No, it's stupid. So then, no, it's not God's will. Well, then the next question is, is it wise? Well, it depends. Wise in what way? Is it, have temporary, is it temporary wisdom, earthly wisdom, kind of not godly wisdom, or is it wise and eternal wisdom? Well, if it's only temporary wisdom, it only matters for here. And this is where you need to seek wisdom. Very good. This, you seek wisdom. You have to ask people, okay, what am I thinking here? Am I, am I on target? Am I off target? Is this what God wants? Am I just thinking crazy stuff? And be open to hearing what they're going to say. So seek wisdom. Is it temporary? If it's, temp- if it's solely temporary, then I think that no, it's not the will of God. But if it's eternal, eternally wise, and maybe also temporarily and eternally wise, or earthly, uh, then I think, I think it, it can be in the will of God. And the next question is, can it fail? And the answer to that question is yes and no. It could fail and maybe it won't fail. It depends. And then the next thing is, yeah, it's God's will. I think that if we go through this kind of thing, that we can land on God's will because God's will is not necessarily like this little path. If you just stay right on this little path, then you'll be good. It's more like if you live in this way and go as God moves and do the wise thing that you'll be in God's will, that you can be in God's will wherever he puts you and places you in whatever job you have, in whatever circumstance that you uh, are in, you can be in God's will. Because his will is for you to follow him and obey him. Now, maybe today some of you have been called. Maybe today as I was speaking, you realize that the will of God for your life is to follow him. And you have this, uh, a moment like I had at 14 when God called me to follow him with all, his life, all my life. Excuse me. And you realize that Jesus has come, he's died for you for the wrong that you've done, and that he has risen from the dead and conquered sin and death forever. And so what I want to tell you is I can give you a bunch of self-help stuff. I can come up here and I can give all this books read and bring it all together and put it up on a screen and all that. But if you're doing it without Jesus, stop. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. So my challenge to you is be in the will of God. And the first thing that is in the will of God for you to do, to do what God wants you to do, is to become a follower of him today. Which means repenting, which is just turning from what you're doing now and turning to him and following him. First step into being in his will and believing that he died on the cross and rose from the dead for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, today, God, I pray that you can be powerful 
in our lives and in our doubts. And God, as we seek out to do what you want, I know in this room there's people in here that want to do what you want them to do. So God, I pray that you would give them the wisdom that they need in order for big decisions that are coming up, crazy things that are happening. God, you would give them the uh, ability to make the right choices, even beyond their own ability. They would seek wise counsel. God, we trust you to do the right thing. God, we can't do another day without you. God, for some in this room, today is the day that they've realized that no matter what they do, their biggest need is not to figure out how to have a better life now. But God, their biggest need is to figure out life for eternity in you. So Lord, for those people, move them to make a decision today to follow you and not to leave this room until they do. Lord, we love you and we trust you. We thank you for all you do and all you're going to do. Pray all this in Jesus' name.